Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, as we do each week, so that we have a chance to gather and worship and sing and, and now turn our attention and our, our hearts to, to Scripture. Lord, would you teach us this morning? Would you guide us? Would you remove distractions from our hearts? And would you, by your Spirit, uh, teach and convict and rebuke and comfort and do all that you desire to do in this place? Uh, we love you, and it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. All right, friends. Well, hey, welcome and good morning. I want to invite you to open up in your Bible or scroll on your Bible app, however you need to get to John chapter 12. That's where we're going to be together this morning as we're back in our uh, sermon series through the Gospel of John. And while you're finding that, I do want to share just some research I came across this week from author and sociologist Brene Brown. She's done some fantastic research on understanding shame and vulnerability. I don't agree with all of her conclusions, but she has contributed some valuable insights into how uh, understanding how we deal with shame and vulnerability. At the heart of her work is this idea that we're all afraid to be seen. We're all afraid to appear vulnerable in front of others. And so we employ a number of strategies to protect ourselves. And again, much of that sounds like what the Bible teaches, right? In our sin and our shame. We want to hide and not let others see us. But many of the strategies that we use to mask and protect ourselves are exhausting and unhealthy and lead to quite fragmented and disconnected lives. One of the strategies that she identifies that people use to protect themselves from feeling vulnerable is the strategy she calls cool. In other words, being too cool to care. You know, you remember maybe when you were in middle school and, and you didn't want to appear over-eager about something, and so you're like, no, no, I'm, I don't care about that. Yeah, I'm above that. Not really worried about that. Too, too cool to care. You know, as if getting worked up and over-enthusiastic about something opened us up to risk. She writes this. Among some folks, it's almost as if enthusiasm and engagement have become a sign of gullibility. Being too excited or invested makes you lame. And that is a title that none of us want to bear. She found this with a lot of teenagers, young adults, young people. It's cool not to care, not to be too invested, but let's not just pick on the younger generation, okay? Because she identified the same trend in adults as well. She writes, we worry about being perceived as laughing too loud, Buying in, caring too much, being too eager. Because, think about it, if you're devoted and over-eager and enthusiastic, there's a risk that comes with it. Because if that thing you're overly enthusiastic about flops or fails or starts to look silly, then you look foolish because you are connected to it. No, it's much safer, right, to keep everything at an arm's distance because that way, whatever fails out there doesn't affect you and your reputation. I mean, we don't want to be labeled as a fanatic or an extremist. And so we go through life, you know, don't get too high or too low. 
Sadly, this sometimes even gets applied to our faith and commitment to Christ. I mean, sure, we're committed to Jesus, but let's, let's not get carried away, right? We don't want to be labeled with the, the fundamentalist tag, the overzealous tag, or as DC Talk said, the Jesus freak tag. Anybody remember that? Right? And so we're reasonable, modern people. You know, my dad taught me everything in moderation. It's how to live a good life. So let's just kind of calm down here. So it raises the question then for us, when it comes to devotion to Jesus, how much is too much? When it comes to devotion to Jesus, how much is too much? That's really the question that the text is going to present for us in John chapter 12. Now, zooming out a little bit before we jump into the text, a little context, the surrounding uh, passages, thinking about the Gospel of John. We're back this morning in the Gospel of John, where we're going to just march uh, right through for the foreseeable future, preaching a little by little through this book. We believe that the Bible is God's Word. We uh, gladly affirm the authority of Scripture and believe that God has spoken to us, made himself known in his word. And so the, the word of God has always been central to worship for the people of God. If you look throughout history, across the centuries, the reading of God's word, the teaching of God's word has always held a central place for the gathered people of God in worship. And so as we preach through books of the Bible, it simply lets us have the text speak and have the text set the agenda and see what God wants to say to us. There are a number of reasons we preach through books of the Bible so often. Uh, one of them is that it, it hopefully helps us learn how to read the Bible, right? So as we're hearing sermons and, and looking at the text, we're not hearing kind of like scattered thoughts and bits and pieces from Scripture pulled left and right, although that's not necessarily bad. That has its place. But as we preach through a book, we start to see, oh, here's how the thoughts here in this chapter connect to what follows and what came before it. And here's how these ideas flow and influence one another, how this fits together. And so we want, want you to see here as we preach through this book, oh, here's how this all connects. Here, here's what to look for, right? That God's word would be accessible, not just something that, you know, skilled professional Christian preachers do up front, but something that we all can come to God's Word and understand it and read it in a meaningful way. So we're in the Gospel of John. Now, if you're not familiar with the Gospel of John, it's uh, one of the four main accounts of the life of Jesus, right? Along with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John is labeled a gospel, meaning good news, meaning this book is telling the good news about Jesus, who he is, and what he has done. Uh, John was the latest of the four Gospels written towards the end of the first century. And although John's name isn't included in the Gospel, tagged as the author, the internal evidence and the consistent testimony of the early church is that John the Apostle was the author, one of the, the twelve who knew Jesus quite well, part of his inner circle. Now, previously we called the Gospel of John study, Come and See. Remember there was a little uh, light bulb graphic that was real pretty. Come and see, because it, the first half of the book of John is really all about this invitation to look at Jesus, look at his signs and his miracles and all that he's done, and, and see who he is. And so we saw starting, you know, in chapter two, we saw his first public sign at, at the wedding at Cana, right, turning water into wine. 
We saw healings, miraculous healings. We saw him feeding the 5,000 and walking on water. Most recently, we saw in chapter 11, Jesus raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. We see Lazarus again here in chapter 12. Not only do we see these signs, but we saw these big claims, right, in chapter 1 that Jesus was in the beginning. Jesus was God himself. The Word became flesh. Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This Jesus says you have to be born again, and whoever believes in him will have eternal life, as he's told Nicodemus in chapter 3. We saw in chapter 4 how he offers living water to the woman of Samaria. We see this Jesus claim unparalleled authority alongside his father. We see him claim to be the bread of life, that whoever comes to him shall not hunger. He says, if you're thirsty, come to him and drink, and out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. Claims to be the light of the world, the one who can set us free, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. We could go on and on of what we've seen so far in the book. But now as we look at chapter 12 and on, we see that the tone of the book sort of changes and there's less public spectacle and more zooming in on the last days of Jesus' earthly life, the last week or so of his life, his time with his disciples leading up to the cross. And so we'll see in the weeks ahead just the cost of discipleship and the invitation to follow Jesus becoming quite clear. And so we jump into chapter 12 as we heard Pastor Ian read aloud. Look at it again, verse 1. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Now think about how incredible a moment this must have been. On the heels of chapter 11, where Lazarus died, and Jesus brought him back to life, after that, Jesus withdrew for a short time because the authorities wanted to kill him, but now he's back in Bethany with Lazarus and his family. It's nearing Passover. This is likely, you know, Saturday before what we call Palm Sunday. Okay, so we're nearing in on the final week of Jesus' life, and Jesus is at this dinner party in his honor, and it paints this really beautiful picture simply in these first few verses of the redemption and the reversal that Jesus alone can bring. Think about it. Lazarus was dead. And so this gathering of the family of Lazarus and friends and those nearby possibly could have been planned as a funeral banquet. Right? They, they were coming together maybe originally to grieve the loss of Lazarus. Friends gathered to remember him, and yet what we find here, verse 2 tells us, almost casually, yeah, Lazarus was among those reclining at the table. Like, Lazarus is still here because Jesus raised him to life. Think of the reversal, the transformation that Jesus brings, what could have been a funeral Dinner has turned into a, a special celebration because Lazarus is alive again. But notice in the text, something takes place that's unexpected. 
scandalous even. Look at verse 3. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary takes this jar of perfume or this flask and she pours it all out on the feet of Jesus. And the room was filled with the fragrance. Now we're just going to have to imagine what that would have been like. I thought about bringing you know, an expensive jar of perfume and just smashing it here in front of you guys. And the fragrance would have filled the room. But then, you know, people in the front row, maybe, you know, sensitive to smells, and there would have been lawsuits or emails. Or all, you know, so I was like, we're just going to have to imagine it. The room filling with the fragrance of this pure, nar, this expensive perfume. The text tells us a few things about it. First, again, it's pure, the verse says, pure, nard. It's of the highest quality perfume. It's expensive, the text tells us. Later, the disciples would estimate that it's worth about a year's wages. Think about that. A year's wages. I mean, how much could, you know, think about what an average family makes in a year. Convert that into how much you could, you know, how much perfume you could buy with that. And uh, that's what we're talking about here. This is uh, extravagant. Either the family's very wealthy, or this is likely a family heirloom, something maybe passed down for generations, a precious possession. Either way, Mary using it in this way was, was radical. And think about the amount. Do you, have you guys seen a pint glass? <laughs> That's a lot of perfume. I mean, this is excessive. You know, somewhere between historians would say uh, 12 to 16 ounces of perfume. Picture that. In a situation like this, less than one ounce for a, a special anointing perhaps would be used. So we're taking 12 to 16 ounces poured out on Jesus. He's practically swimming in this stuff. See, in the Jewish world, a guest of honor would, would regularly be anointed with oil or perfume as an act of uh, symbolically showing their special place as being used by God, anointing royalty. For example, in the Old Testament, kings would be anointed or priests would be anointed at the start of their rule or priesthood. Those appointed for special service to God at times would be anointed as a sign of blessing and honor. But typically, the anointing would take place on their head. Right? And actually, parallel accounts of this event in other Gospels, the head of Jesus is mentioned. But here, John also highlights the feet of Jesus. So even that is over the top. Because the feet were typically, again, uh, washed with water by a lowly servant, not, you know, the, the body part of honor, you could say, like someone's head would be, and yet Mary, there's so much perfume, it's likely on his head and his feet as well. This just extravagant act of devotion. And rather than using a towel, Mary uses her hair. She shakes her hair loose as a sign of his deep devotion and affection for Jesus. And that act, again, would be almost scandalous for a woman in that culture to let her hair down and use it in such a way on Jesus' feet. It was uncommon. So if, if you're new here to the Bible, this wasn't like the sort of thing that happened a lot back in the ancient world. Like women were running around everywhere, letting their hair loose and wiping their hair on the feet of men. That wasn't a common thing, okay? <laughs> this was pretty 
Radical. So put that all together. The purity of this perfume. The amount of it. The cost of it. The act of it on his feet. Mary's hair. All of it together. We have this beautiful, extravagant act of devotion and worship. We might sit here today and say, wow, how incredible, how beautiful, how powerful even. And yet not everyone in the room was thrilled by this. Right? You see the objection in the text in verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Now, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So Judas here, though his intentions and motives are impure, says, what a waste. Maybe speaking up for accountants and church finance committees everywhere. Wait a second! (laughs) We could have used this in so many different ways. This could have been sold, money given to the poor. There's so many pragmatic purposes and uses we could have put this money towards. Again, he had selfish means. It says he was a thief. He just wanted it for himself. But the objection still has to be considered because other gospels will tell us that this same thought was on the minds and hearts of the other disciples. This sort of outrage, this sort of, wait a second. It's too much. This is too much. Mary has lost all sense. She's gotten carried away. I mean, yes, it's Jesus and we love him and He's our Lord, we want to honor him, but this this is too much. Everything in moderation, right? This is not moderation at all. Which raises the question for us, is, is Mary, was Mary right in doing what she did? Should she have taken this perfume and sold it and, and used it for some utilitarian end? Jesus responds, verse 7. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. There's a few layers to Jesus' response here. First, notice he says, leave her alone. He says she's done nothing wrong. He affirms this act. He says it was intended that the perfume would be used in this way. In other words, it's fitting that she did this as he speaks about his coming burial and death. And then he says, you will not always have me with you. And his statement in verse 8 is not about neglecting the poor because scripture is filled with commands to care for the poor. Actually, he's referencing the book of Deuteronomy chapter 15, I believe, which says, a similar sentiment about always having the poor among you. And in Deuteronomy, it immediately goes on to say, therefore, the people of God are commanded to be generous and open-handed to the poor. And so this is not to produce some sort of callous posture towards the poor. Instead, what Jesus is doing is just highlighting the priority, the centrality of worship and of devotion to him as our highest call. 
couple hundred years ago, back in the 1600s, the Westminster Shorter Catechism asked the question, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what's our highest purpose, our highest goal? They say the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Our chief end is to glorify God, worship him, make much of him, celebrate him, enjoy him. And Mary shows us then this true posture of a wanting to honor the Lord, to worship him in the biggest and best way she knew how. That's why our first commitment as a church is worship. Right? That's where we start, that our lives will be marked by devotion to Christ, prioritizing him in our lives, that we would be a people marked by worship with God at the center of our lives. And as we talked about earlier, sometimes it's our tendency to want to kind of water down our devotion to Christ. Or we don't want to come off as too extreme. You know, a religious fanatic, a fundamentalist, a, a zealot. And so sometimes we've kind of created a culture in church where we can just play it cool. Hey, no big deal. You know, you can be comfortable with Jesus as part of your life. We're just asking for like a little devotion. Doesn't have to be the center, the focus. Just make him like a part of it, you know? But that's not how it's supposed to be. The uh, author Rosaria Butterfield has written about her story of conversion going from an, an atheist to a Christian, and she writes this. She says, Making a life commitment to Christ was not merely a philosophical shift. It was not a one-step process. It did not involve rearranging the surface prejudices and fickle loyalties of my life. And here's this phrase I love. Conversion didn't fit my life. Isn't that great? Conversion didn't fit my life. Conversion overhauled my soul and personality. It was arduous and intense. And I love her description here. Because she, she points out, you know, if, if we come to Christ and think that he can kind of just comfortably fit into our lives and head with us in the direction that we were already going, then we've probably misunderstood the gospel. What it means to follow Jesus in the first place. She says and said, no, it's about this, this radical reversal. Isn't that what repentance is? Turning the other way and moving in a whole new direction? And often we misunderstand this where we really are called in worship to say, Jesus, you are worthy of everything, the highest devotion, committing to you in the biggest and best way we can possibly imagine. That's what Mary says, right? With this act. Jesus, you're worthy of everything. And notice she wasn't uh, forced to do this. You know, this wasn't out of compulsion. This wasn't expected of her. It wasn't as if some like, local religious leader was like, hey, here's what you need to go do in order to be considered in the group. No, she just naturally responded in this way. When she grasped who Jesus was, Jesus, because of who you are and all that you've done for me and how you've loved me and changed my life, I will, will freely give myself to you fully. 
Do we love Jesus like Mary did? Do we really grasp who Jesus is like Mary did? Because here's the deal. If if we don't truly grasp and understand who Jesus is, then an invitation to devotion like Mary is going to sound crazy, right? If we don't understand the gospel and who Jesus is and all he's done for us, then then, uh, an invitation to such devotion is going to sound like law and burden, It's a heavy hand coming down from the religious authorities. But have we in in our hearts truly grasped who Jesus is? Again, think about all we've seen in John so far. He's the creator God. He's the word become flesh. He's the king of the universe. He's the the healer, the, the redeemer. He's our savior, the one who will go to the cross and die for our sins. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for us, that in him we might find eternal life. We could go on and on talking about the beauty and the worth of Jesus, the light of the world, the one who came to give us freedom, the bread of life. Come to me if you're hungry and if you're thirsty, come to me, eat and drink and rest. See, it's when we truly grasp who Jesus is that it will naturally flow to a response like this. So have we grasped it, or are we just kind of playing it safe? Another way to ask it is, has following Jesus cost you anything? Has following Jesus cost you anything? You know, made life more complicated or difficult than it was before? You know, do your lives, do our lives cause other people to say, what a waste. What are they doing? Like, think about what you could be doing with uh, with your money instead of, you know, devoting it to the kingdom. What you could be doing with your your time. Think about what you could be doing with your weekends. You keep going to that building every Sunday. Think about all the fun you could be having. The world you could see. The things you could do, the things you could accomplish, the fun you could have, what a waste. Do our lives show, you know what, I love Jesus more than my money. And I love Jesus more than my comfort. And I love Jesus more than my weekends. And he's worth it. He's worth everything that I have. Missionary Jim Elliott once said, he is no fool who gives what he not keep to gain Jesus is worth it friends and I really think as we look at the example of Mary I hope that it inspires us because it's possible to look at a text like this and just feel like it's a burden like oh pastor is just trying to you know crack a whip and pressure us and make us feel bad and uh, like, yeah, I don't measure up to Mary in this example. I need to do better. It's not the way it's intended to come across. I think that as we look at Mary, again, it's not an, an inspiration, right? Aren't we inspired when we see and hear stories of, of devotion, of people who say, you know what? I have found a cause that is bigger than myself and worth my whole life and devotion, and I'm going to give myself fully to Isn't there freedom and joy when we are able to do this? When you, when you see stories of missionaries who risk everything, right? I'm going to leave home, 
I'm going to risk my well-being and my comfort to share the gospel with people who desperately need it. Isn't it inspiring when you hear stories about people who, who open up their homes for those in foster care or those uh, in need of a safe place to stay, even though it's a wildly inconvenient thing for them to do? Aren't you inspired when you hear stories of people who give generously over and over again, who just are open-handed and so kind and bless people in really tangible ways? Aren't you inspired when you see your, your fellow Christians who share the gospel boldly and aren't afraid to look silly in front of neighbors or coworkers or friends because they just love Jesus so much they have to talk about him? Amen. Aren't you inspired and encouraged when people who are super busy, super busy lives, but they still make time, hey, I'm going to be at church, or I'm going to serve at church, I'm going to lead a small group in my, in my off time. I'm going I'm to teach in the kids' ministry at FBC. I'm going to serve in the nursery. Isn't it inspiring when we see these acts of devotion? I think we're all longing to find a cause that's bigger than ourselves. And of course, there's no greater cause than Christ and his kingdom. I think we want to live a life like this. And so I ask you, what might a next step for you look like? I don't know the specific details of your life exactly, the way God might be speaking to you, prompting you, directing you. What might a next step of devotion look like for you? Again, not as a way to earn favor or earn God's grace, because we never could, but simply as a joyful response to all God has done for us. Maybe it's greater generosity. Maybe it's some step to serve at church. We, we do need more help in the nursery, friends, and in our kids' ministry. I know Pastor Lee would love to hear from you if you're interested in serving that way. Maybe it's, again, a recommitted boldness to sharing the gospel with friends and neighbors. Maybe it's taking a step like coming to Rooted on Tuesday night on the fringes. I want to get connected. I want to take a step to grow, to read, to study, to learn, to to work some rhythms into my life of, of devotion and worship. And I want to know what following Jesus is about more. So maybe it means coming to check out Rooted on Tuesday night. Let us know on your connection card if you're interested and want to come out here at 7 o'clock. Okay, maybe it's taking a step of being involved in foster care or struggling families with a safe refuge with Andre and the work that he does. Maybe it's saying, hey, I want to open up my home or support a family who is doing that work even though it's costly. Maybe it's, I want to rearrange my schedule and my calendar so that I'm more available to be with friends and neighbors who don't know Jesus, to serve, to be at church. What does this need to look like for you? Or maybe for some of us, it's not going to be a big, flashy active devotion like it was for Mary. Sometimes that's what it needs to be. But sometimes it's in the simple acts of obedience over the long haul. I don't know who coined this phrase, but I think it's really true. They said, faithful is the new radical. Faithful is the new radical. Meaning it's so common today to get like worked up about the next big thing, 
You know, in like our news cycle and our social media, there's always like some hot button issue or some big cause or something that's like right on the front of everyone's consciousness or we're all talking about it or thinking about it. And then what happens like, you know, a week later, we're on to the next thing and we get worked up about that. There's, there's like this cycle of getting worked up and moving on and getting worked up and moving on. And so it's actually really quite radical and uncommon today to simply stay the course and simply walk with Jesus and simply read your Bible every day and simply come to church and simply pursue Jesus in the little things week after week. I mean, that's radical. That's wildly uncommon today to simply stay the course, as Eugene Peterson put it, a long obedience in the same direction. That's radical. Now, I want you to see another layer here to Jesus' response. Look at verse 7 again in the text. He says, leave her alone. Jesus replied, it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So notice what he's doing here. He's, he's pointing to his death, right? He mentions his coming burial. He mentions you will not always have me with you. He's pointing us to the cross, and so realize the double meaning here. Kings were anointed with costly oil or perfume, but so were corpses. And yet Jesus is showing us the reality of both in his life. Mary here is acting and symbolizing more than she realizes, isn't she? Jesus shows us this act has a double meaning, both as an act of, of devotion to honor a king and as a way to prepare for his burial. Jesus is the king, but his coronation ceremony is his death on a cross. He's the king, but he'll be crowned with thorns and led to the cross. And it's in contemplating that paradox that we understand who Jesus truly is. It's in the cross that we see his death and his glory revealed. It's in the cross that we see his love for us as he dies in our place for our sins. It's at the cross we see that, you know, Mary poured out all of this perfume to honor Jesus, where Jesus will go and pour out his entire life, his very life on the cross for us. So I want you to see in the gospel that we don't just have a king coming and demanding our devotion and that we serve him, although that should be enough and we should respond to him in that way. But in the gospel, we see the love of God. We see what Jesus did to save us and to rescue us. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. And so we see in the gospel not just a, a demand to obey, but a look and behold what God has done for you. Look at his love for you. Now notice, though, how the text ends. So this baffles me when I read this. After Jesus comments, the text brings us back to Brother Lazarus, who's alive again, remember? At this dinner party, probably dancing, having some good food, having a great time. Verse 9, Meanwhile, 
a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. You catch that? After this act of devotion, Jesus points to his death. We see this radical, really radical denial and unbelief by, excuse me, disbelief by the religious leaders. Because a crowd shows up to see Jesus and Lazarus, because Lazarus is alive again, right? That's a big deal. They heard about the miracle. And then verse 10, verse 10, verse 10, the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus. What? You, you say it with me? What? This, they did, what? I mean, think about the irony. Chris, the dude was dead. And Jesus made him alive. And their response? Kill him again. <laughs> like, what? Kill him again. Like some mafia boss. Kingpin. Put him under again. Hey? That was a bad mafia boss impression, but you, you get it. Because they're threatened. People are believing in Jesus because of this miracle. So they want to unwork the miracle. It's wildly irrational. And it's amazing, look at this, that, that the leaders would not allow this evidence presented to them to change their minds. You see that? Now, hear me. Often people come to church and will need extensive conversations about faith. And people have questions. You all have plenty of questions about faith in the Bible. And it's good to talk about those questions. I want this to be a place where, where doubts are welcome. Come and bring your skepticism, bring your questions, objections. Let's talk about it. Let's study. Let's read. Let's learn. Let's, let's work through these questions together. Right? We have genuine seekers who want to know more, want to learn more, work through doubts. Believe me, I'm all for it. Reading good books, studying, talking about it, thinking through why we believe what we believe. Let's have the conversation, ask the question. Absolutely. However, this text shows us that sometimes, not all the time, sometimes, our unbelief is not for lack of evidence. Sometimes we've, we've seen enough to believe. Sometimes we've, we've had enough information given to us. We've received enough proof. We simply need to choose to act on the information we've been given. Again, sometimes ask the questions we need to explore, absolutely, but sometimes we simply need to respond to what God's already shown us. So friends, I ask you how you might need to respond today. As we talked about earlier, what's that next step of devotion you might need to take in your life to walk with Christ more fully? I'm going to ask you to close your eyes now as we pray. We're going to get ready to take communion together. And right before we pray, though, I want to give you an opportunity to respond I think sometimes it's important that we respond in a, in a physical way, not just in the, in the quietness and uh, privateness, privacy, that's the word of our hearts, 
Sometimes we need to respond physically in a way to say, you know what, God, that's, that's me, and I just need to acknowledge that. And so what I'm going to ask you to do, I'm not going to ask you to stand up. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. Um, I, I just want to invite you, wherever you are in just a minute, just to raise your hand if, if this is true of you. So I want to invite you to raise your hand if you are sensing God leading you and saying to you, you know what, this is for you. I want, want you to take a next step of devotion to me. And again, I don't know what, what the specifics of that could look like. Maybe it's, you're here and you don't know Jesus and you're like, I just want to trust in Jesus for the very first time. That would be the step you're taking. You can raise your hand. Maybe it's, you're already a follower of Jesus and you're simply saying, you know what, I've been convicted. There's a part of my life I need to more fully give over to the Lord. So yes, Lord, this is true of me. So I just invite you now. Again, we're, our eyes are closed. We're about to pray, but I'd love to be able to pray for you. If that's you this morning, you're saying, you know what, that's me. I'm convicted, Lord Jesus. I want to respond to be more fully devoted to you. Would you just raise your hand now wherever you are? See a few hands in the room. I see you, I see you, I see you. I see you, I see you, I see you, I see you, I see you. I see you, I see you. You can keep those hands up just for a second. Amen. Let me, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I, I thank you for my friends here who, who, who raised their hand just as a simple act of acknowledging your work in their hearts. Thank you for their willingness to do that, Lord, and I thank you for what you're up to in our midst. Lord, I don't know the details of each situation and why each person just raised their hand now, but I pray that you would lead them. I pray that you would give them wisdom and guidance for whatever that next step is you've placed in front of them. I pray that you would give them greater joy to follow you and obey you and seek you in their lives. Lord, thank you for them. And we just want to cheer them on as a church family, Lord, again, in whatever that next step might look like. Pray if they are trusting in you for the very first time, we'd love to have a chance to be able to, to meet with you and hear from you. If that's you, um, friends, would you find me after the service? We'd love to talk. And now, Father, we want to worship you through the act of communion to take these elements, the bread representing your broken body and the cup representing your shed blood, to take these elements in remembrance of you. And so as a church family, with joy, we come to celebrate the gospel, to celebrate your act of salvation and rescue for us. We were dead in our sins, but you've forgiven us and made us alive through faith in Christ. So Jesus, we worship you this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, friends, well, you should have received the elements when you came in. I want to invite you to take them and, or grab them and get ready to take them together. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this in my blood given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Amen.